Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the seventh week of our series on Matthew chapters 10 and 11 called Offensive Love. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Now we're looking at the uh, Gospel of Matthew, and we're in the middle of Matthew chapters really 10 and 11, where it's really talking about this idea that God calls us to bring his love, the message of his love, to a culture that needs it, to apply it to our own lives. But realizing that it's a message that we need, but not always one that's easy to hear. At times, it might even seem offensive. And uh, in this morning, we're looking at another passage that, you know, that Jesus says some hard things, some things that, you know, might not ring, you know, comfortably with our sensitivities, with our ears, but they're incredible truths that he wants us to see. We're looking at this morning at Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 19. And uh, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it up and to leave it open. If you don't, there's one in front of you. We'd invite you to use that. And, and, and please leave it open throughout our time so you can continue to follow along as we go through this morning and you see where, where all the points come from. Uh, but let me begin by reading the passage we're going to look at this morning, Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you then go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, amongst those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the laws and the, uh, the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept that he is Elijah who is to come, he who has ears, let him hear. But to whom shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We play the flute for you, and you did not dance, and we sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the privilege again of this time to be able to come and to be able to look at your word. Thank you for the things that you continue to teach me, Father, for the privilege of being able to learn and to see uh, new truths that, I, that you're unlocking even for me. And Father, I pray now that your spirit would speak through me and the things that you're teaching me, that your spirit would use me to teach others as well. And Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to come to your word with a heart and spirit of openness, that your spirit would soften our hearts to, to, to receive, to hear and understand and to apply whatever that you might have for us this morning. I pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to tell you, as I get older, the more the more I get older, grow in my faith, the more I appreciate the writings of C.S. Lewis. Um, you know, there are periodically, sometimes, you know, we've been in recommending some books to say, but well, it's a good book to read. Well, I'll give you a broad recommendation. Anything written by C.S. Lewis, it's a good book to read. You know, I just, there's so many things that are so good. Even this morning, I'm going to kind of mention some quotes from The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe and from the, the, his book, The Problem of Pain. Now, the Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe are prob- is probably the best known book of C.S. Lewis. It's about you know, four children that enter the magical world of Narnia. 
And in this story, Jesus is, uh, is represented by Aslan, the king of Narnia, the great king. And early in their time in Narnia, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tried to describe this mighty lion, the great king, to these children. And, uh, and in this, let me read it directly from the book. Uh, he's describing it, and Lucy asks, is he a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood and of the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Uh, don't you know who the king of beasts is? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. Make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. And if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't, then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Now, I tell you, it's a children's book, but there's some great theology just even in that little section. This idea of who is Jesus? He is a lion. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Now, the, the problem is that many people in our culture, we want Jesus to be safe. We expect him to be safe. We, we see him as a, as a gentle lamb that is safe and that is affirming and affirms all of our lifestyle choices. And yet people today will talk about God in this way and, and often refer to this idea of his love. Well, we know that he's loving and we're going to define his love meaning that that means that he affirms whatever we, we want to be, whatever we want to do. Now, this isn't a new issue. It's actually something that, again, we can go to C.S. Lewis and see he wrote about this exact problem 70 years ago. This was from his book, The Problem of Pain. Let me put the quote up here. He said, what would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like to, uh, doing, what does it matter as long as they are contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A sensible benevolence or senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. That's what we see in our culture. This idea that, you know, we want to make God into this image, this senile grandfather who just wants everybody to be happy. But the problem is that's very much at odds with everything that the Bible teaches about Jesus. The Bible teaches that, no, he's not the lamb, you know, that, that just accepts it. There's a sense that he's the lion. And that what it means is when he gets involved in our life, he's not safe. He gets involved in such a way that he wants to do radical transformation. Now, his work is always good. It's not always pleasant. It's not always easy, but it's always good. Now, this idea is taught throughout the Bible, including what we're going to see here in Matthew chapter 11, specifically this difficult verse in verse 12. And, and we read it just a moment ago, but we see it from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent will take it by force. So we don't think of Jesus or the kingdom of heaven being violent in any way. We think of the peaceful lamb. So what is this passage teaching? Well, to look at that, let's back up and see the context of, every, of where this verse takes place and everything else that John is saying here or Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 11. We're told in the beginning of Matthew 11 that, that John the Baptist sent a couple of his disciples to Jesus to basically ask, are you the promised Messiah or should we look for someone else? At first, this should seem to be surprising 
because we know that John the Baptist was the messenger from God, the prophet that was there to, to, to prepare the way for Jesus. And he knew about Jesus before anyone else. In fact, if we look at Jesus' baptism, we're told about this in, in, in chapter three of Matthew. Jesus goes to be baptized and, and very few people even know who Jesus is. And yet, even then, John knew and understood. And he declares that Jesus was the son of God. And he understood Jesus' ministry. He declared that he was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But now John is sending his disciples to question if Jesus is really the Messiah. And we have to say, was he doubting? Is this, has he lost his faith in Jesus? Last week, we looked at some of that and we looked at John's doubts and Jesus' response. And, and, um, and, and again, if, I'd encourage you to go back to last week if you, want to look, if you weren't here. And, and there's some wonderful things there. But, but what we're gonna see now is that after these disciples leave, Jesus now turns and he speaks to the crowd about John and about what we should think about John's doubts. And in doing so, he's defining what belief and unbelief is. So I think that Jesus knew that some of the people then, as some of us now, who read about this thousands of years later, look at the story and we might think, well, well, John's expressing doubts. He's, that's a sign of a failure. It's a sign of unbelief. But Jesus makes clear, no, that's not what's happening here. Because you look at verse 11, he makes a very clear statement about what he thinks of John. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, amongst those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's really high praise. It's maybe not what we expect. You know, we expect, well, if that's a spiritual giant, they're never going to doubt. They're never going to struggle. They, you know, that's a, a proof of the weakness if they do. Even in that, I was reminded of the story of, um, of a guy who had played professional football and uh, he had been recruited by his college coach to help him to come and, and recruit other high school players. And so this guy's Mike Collin, and he's, you know, his coach uh, said, you know, said, Mike, uh, you know, said, what kind of players are we looking for? And the coach said, well, you know, Mike, that, that guy that he gets knocked down and he stays down. And Mike says, we don't want that kind of, we don't want him, do we, coach? And coach says, no, we don't want him. But then there's another fella where he gets knocked down and he gets up, and he gets knocked down again and he stays down. And Mike said, we don't want that guy either, do we, coach? No, we don't want him. The coach says, but then there's another guy who gets knocked down and he gets up and he gets knocked down again. He gets up and every time he gets knocked down, he keeps getting up. And, and Mike says, that's who we want, right, coach? The coach says, no, that's not who we want either, Mike. I want you to go find the guy who's knocking everyone else down. Now, we sometimes think, okay, spiritually, that's what we want. We want the guy that's knocking everybody else down. who's never getting knocked down himself. The guy that never has any doubts, never any struggles. That's the, that's the hero. But what we need to realize is that's not what the Bible portrays as being, in this case, even heroic faith. See, the problem is, is when we think that way, we begin to create this pressure that there's a culture even within the church that we feel if we do have doubts, it's not safe to voice those doubts. It's not safe to talk about our struggles. And therefore, we hide our weaknesses. We deny that we even have doubts. But Jesus looks at this and says, okay, here's John that had doubts, and he comes out and not only defends him, but he lifts them up, he praises him. Why? Because I think he's teaching that the expression of doubt is not the same thing as a weak faith. And so he comes out and he says, okay, when you look at this and you look at John, he's, I think what he's really saying is that God isn't going to judge us for, for our doubts and our struggles. That's not necessarily a failure. See, we may think it is, and therefore we work hard to portray ourselves as strong. We don't admit the problem, but then we have these doubts. That's an opportunity to grow, and it becomes something that, when we keep it to ourselves, it becomes like an acid that just can rot away at our faith. And no, the Bible teaches it's okay to doubt. It's okay to struggle. Even spiritual giants like John can struggle. 
because it's teaching that doubt is not the same as unbelief. See, unbelief isn't questioning God, but it's concluding that God has let us down. It's concluding that God has failed us because when we conclude that God has failed us, we no longer go to him for answers or for help. That's different than doubt. Doubt is where I don't understand. And I say, God, have you failed me? I'm questioning, I'm struggling through that. It's, it's to question and then to look to God for answers. See, we may struggle in doubt, but as we're open with that and we go to God to find the solution, that is not inconsistent with faith. As we talked about last week, that's even how God often grows our faith. Faith doesn't mean that we don't ever have doubts or that we don't struggle. It means that when we do have doubts and struggle, we still go back to God even when we don't see him, even when we, even when we question him. That's what it's te- teaching in, in James chapter one when it says in verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, and, and what this at wisdom, it's understanding how God's promises work out in our life. And literally, if any of you lacks wisdom, what you will, let him ask of God who gives generously to, or gives liberally to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So there are gonna be times that we're gonna have doubts. We're going to lack wisdom. We're going to ask, and God says, what I want you to do is come to me and tell me, ask me, admit the problem. Because when we do so, God's going to then give us the answers in his time without reproach, without judging us. See, it's coming to God. Belief is coming to God even when we're confused, even when we're angry with God, even when we feel that he has failed us in some way that we still come to him because while we feel confused, while we feel angry, while we feel you know, that he's abandoned us, we know in the back of our mind, no, he's got a plan, that he doesn't let us go. And so we come and belief, what is that? It's coming to God and it's surrendering to God and his plan and his will. It's coming and saying, okay, I'm gonna express these doubts, but at the same point, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna choose to believe. And it may not work out the way that I want, the way that I expect, but even if you're not doing everything the way that I expect, I surrender that, that you've got a good plan and in your time, you're gonna help me understand it. That's what Hebrews talks about. In Hebrews chapter 11, it defines faith and look what, how it defines it. It says, faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Basically, it's saying faith is the, the substance of what is true is what we hope for and we can't see when the unseen promises of God, the unseen character of God is more real to us than what we feel in our experiences day to day. That's what true faith is. And that's what you see happening with John, is that he's struggling and he's doubting, but he doesn't doubt and run away. He doesn't go hide, but he comes to Jesus and saying, Jesus, are you really the one? Give me the answers. So in that, Jesus is lifting that up. But then he's saying, okay, John is, is, is an example. It's an example, but then how do we understand this example of his belief? Look at again, verse seven, he asked the crowd concerning John, you know, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? And what he's doing is he's referring to John's popularity as a preacher before John was arrested. All the gospels tell us that he began his preaching ministry in the wilderness by the Jordan River and, uh, and, and, and he drew great crowds to himself. You know, to use the language of our day, he went viral. And he was this viral star that people were talking about, that people were going to see. And, and, but he was one of the most unlikely stars ever. Because when you read about the description of here he's out in this wilderness, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And, and look at what it says in, in, in Matthew 3 about his physical description. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. You look at this and he sounds like this idea of almost this wild man, you know, this wearing wild clothes and his hair is all over the place and he's eating, 
you know, a diet of locusts and honey. He's got, you know, locusts, ear, you know, uh, legs sitting in his beard. You know, it's just kind of, that's almost the picture that I get. And he wasn't preaching his health, wealth gospel. He's preaching repentance and calling out people's sin. And yet people still went to hear him. And so Jesus asked, why did you go out in the wilderness to see him? You know, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Was he someone that was preaching the popular ideas of the time only when, when something changed that he changed his message? He's saying no. He, was, he wasn't a person that was driven by circumstances or culture. His message wasn't driven by these things. When he says a weed, reed shaken by the wind, he's asking, was it someone that didn't have any backbone? Someone that's preaching one thing at one time and he changes his message when the winds of culture change? You know, that he's adapting? And clearly the implied answer is no. Everybody knew that John preached this incredibly politically incorrect message that stepped on toes and was talking about the need for repentance of sins. And when the wealthy and the, and the powerful people came around, he didn't back down at all. He, in a sense, turned up the heat. And he was eventually arrested for you know, preaching against Herod. Well, then in verse 8, he says, Well, then what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? And then Jesus explains what he means by that. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. And basically saying these are people that work hard to keep the influential happy, to make sure they don't lose their income or their influence. And Jesus is saying, John wasn't in it for popularity. He wasn't in it to say, okay, how do I do this to get something else? He, he, he wasn't driven by seeing God as a, a means to an end. The message of saying, okay, I'm going to do this because that's, it's a way to build my own brand in a sense. To, to put it in the vernacular of our day again, what did you go out to see? Somebody that was politically correct in everything that they said? Someone who was careful not to offend the big givers? You know, someone who was, able, you know, was careful to build a name for himself and build a large following? And again, the answer is clearly no. And think about it. Okay, you've got this guy that's out in the middle of nowhere, you know, in camel's hair, eating locusts, preaching repentance of sin. That's clearly not a ministry driven by church growth principles. You know, that's, he's not a marketer here. So then what? drove people to hear him. And Jesus continues, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is of whom it is written, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before me. And they're saying, this is what drove him. He was a prophet who was driven by his commitment to speak God's truth, absolute truth. And people went out to hear him because they sensed that this was someone who was speaking God's truth. And he was willing to speak that truth without compromise in the midst of winds that blew against him, even when it was unpopular, even when it cost him. He was a man of commitment, of courage. You see, what you see is that there's a sense that when we speak truth, it can be unpopular and it can turn a lot of people away, but there's something in us that even when it offends us, even when it steps on toes, we know I may not like it, but I need it. And what does the Bible say? The Bible, Jesus talks in John 8, 32, you know, that when we understand his word, we understand truth and that truth will set us free. And there was something here that people were drawn towards because they could see this person was uncompromising. Now, then we said, okay, that's what Jesus, John, Jesus minister, or John's ministry was. What then is the example that Jesus is calling us to follow? When he says that there was no one born of women that was greater and he said, are we called to be, you know, go out in the wilderness and wear camel's hair and you know, eat locusts? And I hope that's not the example. You know, no, it's, no. So what is it he's called to? See right here. Look at it, verse 11 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, amongst those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
Now, what Jesus is saying is the example that we're to follow in John is his life-changing belief, not his performance. When he says, amongst those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist, he's saying, if we were to judge John by his, by his performance, by his faithfulness, by his courage, by his commitment to God's word, by his morality, there's no one in human history that's going to be greater than him. But then he turns around and says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And what he's saying is, when we're in the kingdom of heaven, we're judged not by our performance, by how good we are, how much we've done. God looks at us and he judges us by our faith in Jesus Christ because when we have faith in Jesus Christ, God not only forgives us our sins, he gives us Jesus' righteousness. So we stand in his righteousness. And so what he's saying here is really amazing. It's this powerful statement about the nature of the gospel. He's saying, okay, think about the most moral person, the most righteous person, the hardest working person, the person that does all these good deeds. And if you think of that most moral person, he's saying in history, it can't go past John the Baptist. But then Jesus said, okay, now I want you to think about someone whose past includes all kinds of moral failures. Somebody whose past includes weakness, who has all kinds of regrets in, in, in life. And, and, and if that person is standing in my righteousness, that person that has all these regrets, if they stand in my righteousness, they stand as more holy, they stand more, more acceptable, more beautiful to me than a person who is John the Baptist who stands in his own righteousness. That's the whole idea. See, the idea is that we are made right by God through our faith in him. And it's not about morality. It's not about doing good. It's not about performance. It's about faith in Jesus. That was John's message himself. Because he didn't point out and say, well, here's my example. Be like me. You know, he always pointed towards Jesus. And what was his message about Jesus? You know, this is the one. He's behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. We're made bright by God through faith in what Jesus did on the cross when he took our sins and the penalty for our sins. And, and again, being part of the kingdom of heaven isn't being good enough and earning our way. It's acknowledging our need and accepting the free gift of salvation that is offered to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that all we have to do is pray to receive Jesus and I don't have to change my life at all? I can just, I've got, you know, I got fire insurance and I'm good. Is that what it's saying? Well, no, that's actually inconsistent with what John taught. It's inconsistent with what Jesus taught. You know, John taught about repent, change. Not that we change ourselves, but let God change us. Jesus taught about the kingdom of heaven where we submit to the king, his authority. See, Jesus builds on these ideas by, by using hard language, speaking about violence, the violence of true faith in Jesus. Now, now, you might not like the term violence. It's uncomfortable, but it's not my term. It's Jesus' term. That's what Jesus speaks of here in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Now, what in the world does that mean? I'll tell you one of the things that even makes it more complicated is that, you know, I seldom do this, but the original Greek, it actually is in very, it's a very unusual terminology. It's literally translated would be the kingdom of heaven is violencing. And it's in a, it's in a a tense of verb that could be interpreted two different ways. So it could be translated to say the kingdom of heaven is receiving violence and that's the way that the ESV, the translation we use, translates it. This idea it's receiving violence. So the ESV says from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. But it also could mean that the kingdom of heaven is producing violence. 
And so another example, the New Living Translation, a great translation, interprets it that way. So it says, and from the time of John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcibly advancing, violently advancing is literally what it's saying here. Now, you say, which one is it? Well, I think that Jesus used the terms that he did because he meant both. Now, the problem is that in our English translations, you can only, you have to choose one or the other. But there's a sense that I think Jesus is saying both things are true. Now, let's look at it. First of all, what does it mean that the kingdom of heaven receives violence? Going back to the ESV, that the heaven, uh, his kingdom of heaven has, has suffered violence. What I think he's saying is the way that the kingdom of heaven was established was through violence. It was through the violent death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, some people will talk about Christianity. Oh, it's a religious philosophy. Oh, it's a moral, you know, moral teaching. It's, oh, it's, you know, it's an example of Jesus. Just try harder, be good. And, you know, I can try this, add a little bit to my life. And what the Bible teaches, it's none of those things. It's not about Jesus coming to be a good moral example for us to follow or provide good moral teaching. No, it's about the fact that we were separated from God by our sins. We deserve God's punishment. There was nothing that we could do to fix that. So Jesus Christ came to establish the kingdom of heaven. But to do that, he had to take on the problem of our sin. And he took our sin upon himself and the punishment that our sin deserved. And he died on the cross suffering the most horrific, violent death in human history. So in doing this, taking the sin upon himself, you know, this, this you know, incredible death, he paid the price of our salvation. And so for us to believe in Christ, it's not just, oh, I just believe. No, I admit the need. I admit that I deserve God's wrath and, and I accept what Christ has done for me. But if I understand that being the nature of salvation, the incredible price that Jesus paid to accomplish our salvation, it will help us then understand another aspect of it. Because then accepting Christ, surrendering to Christ, means that I allow this lion who has brought my salvation through great price to come in and to change me. And that's where, in the sense, where it talks about the kingdom of heaven produces violence. And, and it's the idea that, again, in the New Living Translation, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. And here's what it means. When we come to Christ, Christ does not leave our life unchanged. He comes in in his power to reshape us so that we are no longer the old self. We are a new creation in Christ. The new has come. There's a, a violence, in a sense, of our surrendering to Christ. It means that we come and that we surrender to his authority in our, in our life. And, and that's never easy. It's not without a struggle. There's a violence to it. See, all of us that surrender to Christ know that there's something where we go through this lifelong process where we give God the right to point out our sins and to change us. And it's and part by part doing his work of total renovation. Now, that's not a popular view that many people have. It's popular in our culture to present Jesus, well, he's all loving and he's all, you know, but his loving means that he just is accepting and affirming and whatever, whoever we are, whatever we want to do, God will just, God will affirm that. But again, that's not consistent with Jesus as he portrays himself in the Bible. You know, the Bible tells us that there's a problem with sin that was so significant, Jesus had to die on the cross. And he loves us just the way we are but he loves us too much to let us stay that way. And so he comes and he, and he out, of his, out of his love, he exposes and he does surgery and he, and he changes us and he disciplines us when we're wrong. Even in this some expression of some of these wrong ideas, I don't know if you've heard it, I've, I've heard people will say, well, 
you know, I know, well, the Bible might say this is wrong, but God made me this way. God gave me these desires, so God wants me to live this way because he, he made me this way. Again, if you say that, you can only say that if you totally ignore everything that the Bible teaches. I mean, I say that with love and grace, but that's true. Why? Because the Bible's clear that we're all born with desires that are out of line with God's design. The Bible calls it sin. We have a sin nature. We're born with a sin nature. So all of us are born desiring to do things that are wrong. And God's word in our life isn't to say, how do I help you sin better? How do I help you happy in your sin? No, his thing is, no, that's where you're broken. And so I died on the cross because there was, that's where you're broken and it, it cost that much to fix that problem. And now he says, I want you to, I want you to not stay that way. And so we invite him in our life and we invite him and give him the right to be the lion, to come in violence and to change us. And you know what? That's a struggle. That's the violence that Jesus is talking about here. Now, in the midst of that, though, we're going to struggle. And I'll talk to people periodically and say, well, I'm struggling with this and I'm continuing to struggle. And, and I beat myself up because I feel like I'm failing. And I just, my friends, if you're here, that's you. If you're struggling, that's good. The thing is, is in our struggle, we may continue to stumble and fall, but as long as you're struggling, if you're, you know, violencing in a sense, that's a sign that God is working in your life. It's the people that just say, well, I just choose to do this and God's got to affirm it. But that's a problem. That shows you that maybe you don't have that relationship with God. See, there's this idea that, no, some people argue that God should just affirm everything that I'm doing, any lifestyle. Again, this is an old lie. Let me give you even an example of, of a true story that kind of some of this played out. Um, early in his ministry, Billy Graham uh, had a number of huge crusades and there was national news at times of people that made dramatic conversions, including one person that came to Christ from a background out of uh, organized uh, crime. And he's a pretty well-known person, but in the process, he decided to try to reach out to some of the other people in organized crime. And he invited one person, one of the most notorious gangsters of the time, a guy named Mickey Cohen, to a crusade. And Mickey Cohen came to several crusades and showed a spiritual interest, but didn't go forward. And sometime later, this friend reached out to Mickey and tried to talk about the gospel and even prayed a sinner's prayer. But then nothing changed in his life. He continued to do everything that he had done before, breaking laws, whatever. His friend challenged him on this. And and, and Mickey Cohen was offended. He told his friend, he said, you never told me I'd have to give up my work, meaning that I'd have to give up my illegal, illegal activities. He said, you didn't tell me that I'd have to give up my friends, you know, hanging out with my gangster associates. He said, you know, I know of this person who claims to be a Christian, you know, a Christian cowboy, and this person who claims to be a Christian actress, and this person who claims to be a Christian senator. So why can't I be a Christian gangster? Now, the problem is, that the lifestyle of a gangster is very inconsistent with the moral teachings of God's, God's, uh, God's word. And what we've got to realize that in the same way, that if we take a lifestyle choice, that we continue down a path that's totally inconsistent with what the Bible says is sinful, that the Bible says is wrong, that's inconsistent with being a follower of Jesus. Now, I know in saying that, it can be, in some of this can be very politically incorrect. It might be offensive to some. So rather than me say it, let me just read God's word. Let me read directly from what God says so that you see this is not my opinion. This is what God's word says. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now it's not those who have done sinful things. That's all of us. 
It's not people who have, have you know, struggled with these things, but people whose ongoing lifestyle is defined by a morality that is embracing things the Bible says that is unrighteous or sinful. And then he gives examples of what some of these things are. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's not saying, again, people that have done these things, because all of us have done these things. He's saying people that whose lifestyle, consistent lifestyle, kind of like, okay, think, think of it in terms of, again, the gangster. One guy was a gangster. He's, you know, he converted. The other guy says, I'm going to continue to be a Christian gangster. I'm going to continue this. And he's saying, okay, no, if we continue this path, but what if those of us have backgrounds? He makes this really clear. Next verse. And such some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. See, many of us here, we have the stories. We were those things. And yet God has saved us and God has changed us. And that's not who we are anymore. That's who we were. But if we say, well, that's who I am. Well, that's inconsistent with being a follower of Christ, just like a Christian gangster is being inconsistent with a follower of Christ. Now, does that mean that we will not struggle? We will struggle. We will struggle, but that's the violence. That violence of surrender as God goes one thing after another after another, changing our lives. Will we embrace that or we run away from it? Now, the hard part is that we run away from it and we make excuses. Why? Because deep down, why do people reject Christ? Well, we have excuses, but it really comes down to we want the Godfather and God, you know, Godfather who affirms all our decisions, that that kinds, you know, you know, that not a lion that's going to change us. And the real reason people reject Christ is that we don't want to give him control of our lives. Now look what it says here. This, you know, this reason behind the reason. Look at verse 16. What shall I compare this generation to? Is it like it is like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you and you do not dance. We sang a dirge, and you do not mourn. Now, what he's doing is he's describing a cranky child. All right, now, some of you can remember when you've had young children, if you, how many of you can remember this, you relate to it if you have kids now, that you've got a child, and you've got something really special for them. You've got a special event. You're doing something really fun, and they're, I don't want to do it. You know, it might be a party. You know, you come and you say, they go and sh- slam the door. I don't want to go to the party. We got some cake for you. I don't like cake. You know, we got some presents. I don't like presents. Can any of you relate to that? And they're going to say, I don't like this. Well, the issue isn't what they don't like. Sometimes you're, you know, I know you like this. There's another issue behind the issue. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about that example that when people reject Jesus, there's always a reason behind the reason that's given. Now, here's the picture when he talks about, you know, these kids playing in a marketplace. It's basically at that time, you know, you had, you know, parents when they came, you know, um, they didn't have school. You bring your kids with you. So they'd be at the marketplace and all the kids would gather and they would play a game. And one of the things they would do is they would play a song and they would kind of you know, play, you know, play songs and kind of like make believe. The two big events in the culture when everybody gathered together, you know, weddings and funerals, All right? That's when everybody sang, everybody got together. So it's, he's saying, okay, now let kids get together and he's got a flute. Let's, let's get together and play wedding. Okay, we're gonna do that. You're gonna be the bride, you're gonna be the groom. We're gonna sing, we're gonna dance. And, and everybody's getting into it and one kid says, I don't like wedding. I mean, that's a stupid game, I don't wanna do it. And so you say, okay, well, okay, then let's do another game. Let's do, let's do funeral. Let's do this. And we're going to do this. And we're going to talk about, and you sing a dirge and you do this. And we're going to, I don't want to do that either. I don't want to, that's a stupid game. I don't want to do it. And when kids say that, basically they're saying, you know, you're not happy with, 
rejoicing, you're not happy with your wedding funeral. What's the problem? They say it's the tune. I don't like the tune. The problem isn't the tune. The problem is it's not my tune. The problem is I want to be the leader. I want to be in charge of the game. And as long as you're in charge of the game, I don't want to play your game. Everybody has to play my game. Now, that's what Jesus is saying here, is that people will come and they will say, well, I'd reject Jesus for this reason. Well, there's always a reason underneath the reasons. And the real reason isn't whatever you're saying. The real reason is you're saying, I want to be in charge. You know, I don't want the lion. I want the lamb who's going to let me do whatever I want to do. But the nature of unbelief is such that you'll convince yourself that there's another reason. You don't want to really say, I'm rejecting God's authority, so I don't like this. I'm not convinced of this. God didn't do this of me. So ultimately, if we say, okay, God, this is who you are, then I'm accepting, ex- accepting his authority or rejecting it. I don't want to call that out. So what do we do? We make excuses. And what you see here is that Jesus is saying most people's reasons for ex- rejecting God are really just excuses. Look what he says in verses 18 and 19. For John neither came to eating nor drinking, And they say, he is a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Some people were looking at it and saying, well, we we won't accept John's message because, because, you know, because he's left in the desert and he doesn't eat or, you know. And then they look at Jesus. Well, he's, he's friends with tax collectors and he is eating and drinking. And it shows the opposite nature of the, of the arguments. Those aren't the reasons. They're excuses. The real reason is you want, you know, it's not the song. It's you want it to be your song. And people are rejecting. And that's what I find is with people that sometimes it's people that don't know Christ. Well, it's this answer, this answer. Their argument, I can't, well, okay, well, let's meet and we'll talk. Usually they don't want to talk. If they do, I'll give an argument. They'll be like, well, okay, that's a good argument. But then there's this problem. Then there's this problem. And the fact is, whatever you're telling me really isn't the issue. I'll talk to people and they'll, you know, well, they've walked, maybe they're believers, but they've walked away from God and, well, God didn't do this and God didn't answer his, and I don't, they don't want to talk about it. But even if you do, and if you could start to give some answers, then I'll find another thing. Because the thing is that really our reasons are you really just excuses. See, God calls us in the midst of this to say, okay, what are we going to do with God? God is pursuing us. He's pursuing us in his goodness. And in that goodness, the question is, are we going to come to God and are we going to accept him for who he is? Again, we want him to be the lamb. We want him to be the, the senile grandfather that just affirms. And the Bible says, no, there's a violence to this. There was a violence that was, you know, Jesus paid on the cross when he died for our sins. That's the nature of sin. Do you understand what Jesus has done for you? And now he comes and he says, okay, I want to, I want to be your savior. You've got to accept me not on your terms, on my terms, on who I am. And there may be some here you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you might think, well, I've got to do this. I've got to measure up. I've got to be good like John the Baptist. And again, what he's saying, you know, the least in the kingdom is greater than, than the John the Baptist. We can bring all our failures, all our weaknesses, all our struggles, all those things. And we come and we say, God, I, I, I just bring my need. God, I ask you to forgive me through Jesus Christ. And he not only forgives us, but he gives us his righteousness. He makes us acceptable and just before him based on our faith and what he has done. If you've never done that, I invite you to do that this morning, to just even pray where you're at. God, I agree with you. I ask you to forgive my sins. I want to follow you with my life. I want to give you the right to not, if not only I need all, I know your forgiveness, I want to give you the right to be the leader of my life and to change me. Well, and then when we've done that, then the question is, okay, are we really submitting to Christ and his authority in our lives? That, not only that first time, but how about in an ongoing way? 
because there'll be times that, okay, I do that, and then, then I, you know, but Jesus, I want to take control again, but I don't like his tune. Well, the question is, it isn't whether you're struggling with that. That's okay to struggle. It's okay to question. That's what John did. But at the end of the day, are you going to come back and you're going to struggle with God and say, but God, you are God and I'm not. And I want you to point out things in my life. I want you to change me. And if you're struggling with that, if you're struggling with, but I've messed up here, don't beat yourself up with that. See, don't run away from it and think that because you're struggling that you can't talk to anybody because you failed an area, you can't talk to anybody about that. Don't do that. See, whatever that's driven by, it's not driven by biblical truth. It's not driven by the heart of Jesus. Instead, God calls us to say, no, we're going to submit. And that means we're going to struggle because there's a violence in this. This is hard. I understand it's hard. But it's hard together. And we're all going through it. And, and none of us, even John the Baptist, wasn't without struggles. So let's struggle together. Let's be open and honest. Let's God do work in our lives as we learn to be able to let him surrender one area after another. Is it safe? No. He's not safe, but he's good. And it will be hard, but it's good because he continues to transform us into the image of, of who he wants us to be, of who he's created us to be. Will you let God work in his life and your life today? And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life/connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.